It's the quotidian. It's episode four. Welcome back to the Quotidian Podcast. I'm Bradley Dennis. I'm very excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Brian Brander, who's the head of School of the Hill Center for Learning in Durham, North Carolina which focuses on developing and nurturing children with diverse learning needs. I've been particularly inspired and impressed with results I've seen firsthand, both in students I have taught who have attended Hill Center, as well as members of my own family who have thrived as a result of Hill's unique style and singular dedication to the whole child. Dr. Brander received his doctorate of education from North Carolina State University and holds a degree in social work as well. We spoke today about what makes a good teacher, about creative approaches to teaching and learning and how many of the societal issues we face today could be alleviated by a more widespread use of even a few of the techniques that are employed at the Hill Learning Center. Today's episode is produced by carolinacommons.org. To learn more about Carolina Commons' mission to foster creativity and play, visit www.carolinacommons.org. Thank you, as ever, for being here. And please enjoy my conversation with the dedicated and enthusiastic Dr. Brian Brander. Dr. Brian Brander, welcome to the Quotidian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And I wanted to just start by kind of addressing the reason why I wanted to speak to you. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the power of education, and I really feel like this time in our lives, in this kind of cultural moment, there's a huge gap. Um, politically, socially, economically. And it seems to me that one way to address that gap is to have a population that's better informed, that's able to make sense and meaning of things that they encounter, to have critical thinking skills, to have the kind of things that a traditional education is supposed to provide. Um, so I think the first thing I'd like to, to talk about is, is less about the education and more about the teachers, because clearly, you know, teaching the kids is important, but you also have to have teachers that are capable of those things themselves, which are increasingly, um, harder to find skills. So how, how do you select and what are the attributes that you look for in in a teacher? And I guess the follow-up question would be what makes a successful teacher in this day and age? Great question. I'm, I'm glad that you immediately went to the teachers because that's, of course, the bread and butter of any educational institution. And I think I'd start very broadly by saying that you know, anyone who pursues a career in education um, has a unique characteristic that maybe sets them apart. Yeah. You know, they find that there's billions of careers out there. And if you think about education, it's not exactly maybe the most desirable position anymore. Um, the job is changing. The landscape is changing. The expectations of an educator is changing by the moment, by the day. And um, I, I look out in the future and I'm very concerned for um, the future of education because of the teacher base. However, with that said, I believe the calling to be an educator like myself, it's because of life experiences that push you there. And there's some inherent quality around um, wanting to make a difference, caring deeply about kids and caring deeply as a result 
about the outcome of our future that pushes folks in education. I think if you interview faculty here and faculty across the nation, you'll see some commonalities around that relational piece, that connection piece, that spark, that journey. That's what puts people in education. Unfortunately, I think when we see about the shift in the careers and the great resignation that is touching education as well, it's because they're not seeing that spark. They're not. They're unable to see that difference be made mm-hmm. because of all the complexities. Um, at Hill, we are fortunate that we have extremely small class sizes. Our teachers do not leave because they can see that difference every single day. Yeah, and they can feel like they're making that. They're making that change, right? Sure. And that is the motivation. That is the fuel. It's not the paycheck. It's the immediate feedback they get and the gratification from the kids. It's that spark. It's that light bulb moment that they can really account to every single day. It's not like, let me think about one this month. There's one every day, every class. That's and they great. can see that. And and that is, that's why folks are in education. That's why teachers uh, do what they do. So um, to be motivated by students and to be motivated by that spark is special. Yeah. Because not everyone is motivated by helping others. Some people are motivated financially or um, career trajectory or whatever it may be, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But teachers do it because of the spark, and our teachers are no different there. They are drawn to the spark. When we think about teacher recruitment and qualifications, we want folks that are really excited to figure out the puzzle of teaching kids who learn a little bit differently, right? That need need different methods, need different push, need different motivation. And our teachers teachers have that. We have a very rigorous training process platform for our teachers. They're coming with uh, training in uh, teaching diverse learners, which is which is the commonality of all our folks. Mm-hmm. But they're also coming to be hungry to learn more, right? Our teachers have this growth mindset, which is really exciting. And you hear this term overused a lot in the field and, and just, um, you know, oh, we want a growth minded coworker or educator or whatever it may be. But our teachers are hungry to learn, and that modeling for the kids is key, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of our students attend, a lot of students attend school and just go through the rhythms, right? They're being put through a, a process, unsure about why. They're just following directions and asked to do this and asked to do that and say, just trust the adult. It'll make sense someday. Mm-hmm. Um, our teachers are also going through that same shared learning and yeah. that professional growth. And I think it's really important for the students to see the teachers in that seat, right? They're, they're learning, they're failing, they're trying to get better, and that's the modeling we need for our, for our students. So the qualifications, of course, the training and the pedagogy and the um, learning difference training, special education training and methods, very key, but also that personality and that hunger to grow and get better, mm-hmm. right? And to lift others up around. That's what we're looking for yeah. in, the, um, in our teacher candidates. Wonderful. And it sounds also to me like your teachers are here for a lot of the same reasons that students are here because they, they think a little bit differently. Um, they, they want something more out of education um, and they want something more out of the experience. So I'm curious for you, how did, what was your path to, to education and specifically this type of education? this being so focused on on the student-centered work yeah my pathway was non-traditional like a lot of our students and Mm -hmm. the way a lot of our families find us my first career was in uh, accounting auditing so i was i was a business background and um i the career path i chose was very early on in high school where I knew that I wanted to be a special agent in the FBI. That was my dream. That was my passion. And what wow. teenager doesn't want a career in law enforcement and special investigations? There's a high degree of novelty in that, at least in your imagination. High I, degree. I yeah. had the jacket. I had everything. I had yeah. the badge. And I talked to every recruiter that was out there. Wow. And they gave me the advice, listen, we don't just hire folks out of college. You need some time. We do white collar crime. We're looking for accountants and we're looking for lawyers. So picked one of the two and go deep. Had no interest in law. I was pretty good at math. So I chose a career in accounting Mm. and um, graduated with a bachelor's degree in accounting, started a career with KPMG, a big five accounting firm, had an internship with Arthur Anderson. However, they imploded during my internship. Um, So KPMG it was. Two years in that field, it was satisfying in some ways and extremely 
you know, the opposite in others. It mm-hmm. was, it was mundane. It didn't have the connection. I was doing the work. People were saying I was doing a good job, but I did not have any relational connection whatsoever. Hmm. So driving home one day, uh, after about two years in, I, I was reflecting on five more years of this, six more years of this to apply for the FBI to have that to chance. Apply. Should I really continue down this pathway when I'm really, if I'm honest, I'm miserable. Yeah. Not having a good time. And, um, but I, but I pushed myself. I said, well, well, what is it you're missing? Like what, what is the job not providing? This is accounting, right? There's no surprises here. This is the field you knew you were getting into mm-hmm. and some soul searching. I found out that the piece I was missing was the relational connection with, uh, coworkers, clients, people making mm-hmm. a difference, right? We were doing a service, but it was very transactional. Yeah. No one really wanted you there. Um, the relationships with the clients were not really deep. And uh, that's what I was missing. So I reflected on my high school experience. And a senior in, in high school, I was able to do an internship in a, in a classroom for students with intellectual disabilities at my high school. It was a transformational moment uh, where I was assigned to one student the entire time. Um, and one of our great achievements was I taught her how to tie her shoe. This mm. was a student who was about to graduate as well at the age of 21. I was 18. She was one of my classmates. She mm. did not know how to tie her shoe and it was driving her nuts because that was her goal by graduation. We worked for weeks and months and we finally got there. And that breakthrough moment, I was excited for her more than me, of course, and mm. uh, didn't think anything of it. Launched off to college. I don't know why it hit me like a ton of bricks driving home from, from work that day, but I was reflecting on that moment and how meaningful it was for her and therefore me. Yeah. And I said, a career around students making a difference is exactly what I want to do. So went back to school, uh, really went back to school because the accounting credits did not transfer with education. <laughs> didn't do much. They did not do much at all. So yeah. I got a master's in special education and substituted in a variety of classrooms throughout the day uh, from preschool to high school, all different disabilities. Just mm-hmm. to try to figure out, I was wide open of like, okay, the field is broad in special education. Yeah. What type of learner do I do best with and is my calling? And didn't really have it figured out, uh, to be honest with you. My first uh, job was back at that high school I graduated from teaching mm-hmm. learning support and um, intellectual disabilities. So quite quite the disparity there. And uh, and I enjoyed it. And I and uh, find, found my way back to, down to North Carolina and um, did a search, found Hill, just stumbled across it, to be honest with you, on a search. And uh, the, the minute I interviewed here, I saw a very unique environment that I wanted to learn more about. So I came in unsure if this was my permanent home, mm-hmm. but very curious about the teaching methods, the environment, the setup, the ratio. Yeah, I was like, there's something great happening here that I need to explore further for me and, um, and for, my, for my growth. That was 16 years ago. And I have not left. So um, brilliant. What I found was was motivating. And just like the teachers who don't leave, like to be an administrator and a school administrator, which I had no vision to become. I mm-hmm. came as an educator and a teacher, and I still view myself as an educator and a teacher. But to be able to do the work I do while also having a close connection to students and families yeah. is something that not every peer of mine has. Um, which is why opportunities at larger schools and bigger environments mm-hmm. isn't my calling or, or really an interest of mine because um, such a small feel and to be able to deliver that kind of passion and motivation mm-hmm. um, is really critical for me. One of the things that you mentioned is the small class size, which is uh, four students to each teacher, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. And the the amount of attention that each student receives from the teacher, who are similarly motivated, as you know, as you express your journey, and really speaks to the power of that connection. Both. I mean, when you ask anybody about um, a moving experience from their uh, scholastic experience, their life, they'll always talk about one special teacher. And almost always the teacher has that passion, has motivation, is, is interested in the subjects that they're teaching as well. And that translates to the student 
but not every student equally. And, and so when you have that low ratio and that attention, um, it's, it's kind of transformative. I came across a wonderful quote this morning from Simone uh, Weil. It says, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about harnessing the power of attention. Mm -hmm. And especially nowadays when a lot of young people are really craving sort of the fame and notoriety of being in the spotlight. Um, there is a huge, obviously, problem with with social media and engagement. And uh, there is now what's called an attention economy, which, interestingly enough, I only just discovered that phrase that that that's a thing and that our attention is being really monetized and mm -hmm. and um, and mind extracted. Can you talk a little bit about the power of attention here and in your experience and and how we how we can transform that for kids here and maybe in a larger context? Sure. So a phrase I often say here uh, to new prospective families is get ready for the adjustment because there's no back of the class. Right. And what I mean by that is given our small ratio. Mm. there's no back of the class. Everyone yeah. has a front row seat, which for parents, they get really excited. For a lot of our new students, they have a different reaction. Yeah. Well, what do you mean there's no back of the class? That's my comfort zone. That's my jam. That's where I can settle in and engage at my pace, right? Well, now at front court, there's not that option anymore. Right. And for a lot of our students, that is an adjustment. And that's a hard adjustment, especially in the first couple months, because there's extreme vulnerability as a result, right? There's an open book. There's every mistake is heard in their mind and they're mm -hmm. constantly under the spotlight. So that's because the teachers have focus and attention on all four kids at any given moment, knowing that that's not the reality in most classrooms. But the challenge I have for, for us as a society when we think about educating youth is how can we create systems and environments where there is no back of the class? Right. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a front row seat. Yeah. And it may not be the same intensity or the same level, but no one goes throughout their entire day, let alone week, without a front row seat or an mm. invitation for a front row seat. When we talk about individual attention and laser focus, really what we're talking about is, in my mind, deepening relationships with students, right? Students don't typically attend school to seek out relationships maybe with the adults, right? They're going sure. to school to play the school game, which I did as a youth, right? Yeah. The yeah. game was to get grades, perform, do what was said, do just enough to look like I'm learning and to be successful in the eyes of the traditional metrics. Mm -hmm. But if we, can, if we can flip that script a little bit, and I think we're trying to do that here, right, of... The teacher and the student relationship is so critical and it's really formed on attention. So the more that our teachers can pour in um, in positive ways, not just educationally, but also what's going on outside of the school, mm -hmm. um, the more that students can lean into that human interaction too, right? When we talk about attention, it's not just clicks, it's not just views, it's not just sound bites, but it's really how many people in your network know you mm -hmm. and care about you yeah. and invest in you. And it doesn't have to be 10, 20, 30. But back to everyone has a front row seat. Can we challenge ourselves too to ensure that all students can count on at least one hand the number of people that care deeply about them and know their story and invested in their growth, right? It may be a family member. It may be a friend. It may be a teacher. Okay, that's three. Can mm -hmm. we get the five for every student and can we get everyone a front row seat? And that's, that's what we talk about here a lot of like, Every word matters, every action matters. When the students have the spotlight on them, the educators also have the spotlight, right? Sure. You can't just mumble something, people are gonna hear it. You yeah. can't just go to the back of the classroom and reset. The classrooms are small. So everything the teachers say, kids are watching. Everything the students do, educators are watching. So there's, there's, uh, there's power there. There's also expectations and increased accountability there as well. But, but I keep going back to, yeah, how can we get everyone a front row seat and to develop deep relationships with one another? Because I think that's 
the positive attention we're seeking because there's a such thing as the negative attention that we're trying to avoid. But yeah. how can we how can we snuff it out with that positivity piece? And that's what mm-hmm. we're trying to always talk about here a ton, right? There's things that are going to keep us down. We're going to fail. We're going to fall as educators, as students. And some things are out of our control. We yeah. know that. But how can we keep reminding ourselves of these wins? Because um, we don't talk about the wins enough, right? And yeah. it's, those, it's those losses, those shortcomings that are going to be imprinted on our brains that we're trying to overcome, right? Mm-hmm. That growth mindset piece. There's a quote by a um, psychologist and um, neurobiologist, a guy named Ian McGilchrist. He wrote uh, The Master and His Emissary, a book about the bicameral mind, left and right hemispheres. <clears throat> and he says, attention is a moral act. And it took me a long time to really wrap my brain around that. But especially in, in this context, and especially given how kids blossom when they're given a compliment, when they are encouraged, when they're in a a successful learning environment in a relationship given space to be themselves that 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 it cr- starts to create a spiritual context for the growth of the child um, I come from a Quaker background and I went to uh, a friend school and so it was a private school so there's obviously not the problem of the separation of church and state <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there was no overt religious messaging in in that context, but it was implied in things like the belief for the Quakers, the belief in the power of silence, the belief in seeing that of the divine in others. Um, that was implied in in how the school created its educational philosophy, and so kind of getting back to this idea of attention. Um, how, how do you see education as being able to bridge that very delicate gap of encountering this sort of spiritual context or spiritual aspect of of the person, the whole person? Or do you? This is where, yeah, I believe the... The expectations and the role of educators is constantly changing, right? Yeah. And the last three years has tested us beyond our superpowers, which we think we, what we thought were possible, right? So mm-hmm. I think the exciting point is that every educator and student and family member has been pushed in ways that we just did not think were fathomable in the past three years. Yeah. And it also helped us emerge questioning what is the role of the educator? What is the role of the student? What is the role of education and schools, period? And what is the content we should be covering? What are the standards? What are the things that are not listed, right? Mm -hmm. And are they more important, right? Thinking about that whole village approach and the family connection and student and the educator. If we think about the, the history of education, we've seen it kind of wax and wane. And I think right now we're trying to figure out where are we? And I think different institutions are maybe um, becoming um, excited or pulled into one or two or three of these domains, whether it be remediation and academics to fill this learning gap or learning loss we've experienced the past couple of years. Or maybe it's doubling down on social emotional learning because we're seeing, you know, the high rates of depression and needs and social kind of stuff. Or maybe it is something different or some combination thereof. I think we're trying to do it all, and I think there's a limit to what is feasible in any given day. Yeah. Which which makes us come back to, at least here, when you think about what is the role, is it laser-focused academics? Is it social-emotional growth? Um, is it something different? I think, it's, I think it's all of those things, but at the end of the day, I think we need to be very intentional about our work. And I mm-hmm. think what we've tried to structure here coming out of the past few years is really double downing on our mission, our history, and kind of the outcomes we want to see moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. We want to see real tangible gains in the academics, reading, writing, math. And we know that takes uh, explicit instruction, that takes intentionality, and that takes just daily practice. Hey, remind me, what is the mission of Hill? The mission is to transform students into confident, independent learners. 
So confidence and independence are our measuring sticks at the end of the day, right? That's, that's a great metric. And, um, yeah. So when you think about confidence and independence, academics really isn't part of that. It's implied, right? Yeah. Our methodology was birthed out of a Orton-Gillingham approach of how do we help students learn how to read and decode the language when it's just a foreign concept to them. Mm-hmm. So with, with that explicit instruction comes confidence and independence. There's also a piece of advocacy built in. So really, the questions we've been asking recently is, okay, five years down the road, when the student leaves our institution, when they are in high school, college, beyond career, what kind of person do we hope they become and what skills are we preparing them for moving forward? Yeah. And yes, they need a foundation in academics. They really need that confidence and independence, right? Um, They need to know how to advocate for themselves. They need to know how to ask for help. And how can we practice that here in a safe, small setting, knowing that they're going to fail? How can we continue to push them? Mm-hmm. And once they're acquiring their skills and we're giving that positive feedback, how can they apply it to the larger school? And then how can they apply it out into the world? So that's yeah. kind of the ringed approach we're looking for here. Um, but we need to do all that. And I think it's, it's a delicate balance because often we can get very overwhelmed when we think about all the need and all the goals and all the aspirations for educators and education of like, we need to, we need to conquer it all. Yeah. And, and that's a kind of a common theme for educators. You've got to do everything mm-hmm. and you have to do it on no money. Right. And so that's a, <laughs> that's a real rock and a hard place for it. Be, be super human mm-hmm. and do it on your own dime. In a lot of ways. And without a lot of time. Yeah. Like you hear time a lot, right? Of like, I wish I had more time. I yeah. wish I wish we had another week. I wish we had another day for this concept, for this theme, for this whatever. Because schools also, there's just a lot of stuff going on, right? Yeah. Um, so sometimes classroom instruction is interrupted or their schedule is always changing. So continuity is really hard, I think, too, to establish. So I think time is a big element. But yes, it's overwhelming thinking about the overall arching goals of education. And mm-hmm. then you multiply that out over all the students' And um, in the state, in the nation, it's like, what are we trying to do? But I keep coming back to what is the one theme? If every educator in the world made a conscious, intentional decision every single day to invest deeply in relationships with students while doing the, doing the necessary work of being a great teacher and hitting standards, but how do we continue to pour into relationships and individuals? Ask those questions when, yes, you're exhausted, when, yes, maybe you don't have the time, and when yes, you're not being compensated accordingly. But if we all invest in the power of relationship and ensure that every student has a front row seat on mm-hmm. a given basis, what will the outcomes be? Right? Just that tweak alone, it's bringing, it's coming to your day job with a greater intentionality. And it's not just the educators, not just the teachers. Like it always comes back to the teachers. There's a lot of folks that run a school and make a school and make a community, and mm-hmm. um, the families, the administrators, the support staff everyone. So if everyone can show up with that same intentionality of locking into that relationship, going the extra mile to ask that question, not just putting head down when they walk through the hallway, yeah, where could we be? And that's something I, I put on myself a lot too, because you look at a daily calendar and what needs to be accomplished in a day and wow, it's overwhelming. It's a lot. Not going to get to it all. I'd have greater success if I just locked myself in the office and just plowed through these emails or plowed through these meetings but therefore I'm ignoring and not not preaching and right. not walking the walk right um, in the classroom. So right. that's that's the culture we try to build here, but it's hard. And every year I feel, or the past 16 years in my professional educational journey, becoming increasingly more challenging. Finite and Infinite Games by P, uh, James P. Karst. I'm not. I highly recommend it. So I was turned on to this a few years ago, and then uh, a fellow that I have enjoyed listening to, um, who's a calls himself a professional optimist, uh, Simon Sinek. I know Simon. Yes, and uh, so the kind of in a nutshell, the idea is that there's two types of games. There's the game in which there are set rules and strategy and there's a set outcome there's a winner and a loser 
and which UNC is very familiar mm-hmm. with right now. And and those are finite games. Mm-hmm. They they have a beginning, a middle, and end. Um, and then there's the infinite game in which there everyone is a player, and every the goal is to keep the game going. And so when you talk about the idea of of teachers, educators, administrators, of a community of learners who are invested, that it gets to this idea of an infinite game mindset because the outcome isn't a test score. The outcome isn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, our metrics for college entrance uh, or graduates. It's how competent is this person? How confident? How independent are they? Are they engaged in their learning? Because those are going to change over time. But if they have that mindset going in, then they're looking at best outcomes and they're also looking at how to support everyone around them in the ability to continue playing the game. Um, and it, it really seems like there's a parallel here on what you're talking about. And that's, that's not easy because it's a complete paradigm shift mentally. And, you know, this being a, a, a private institution, I would imagine that there's a predominance of differently abled learners out there in the traditional mm-hmm. school system who could benefit from what's going on here. But even if you took a modicum of the philosophy and the focus and applied it to those areas, you'd have such um, a, a different mindset and I think a radically different outcome. And it's just a little tweak, right? It is. It really makes me think about a concept we've been kicking around a lot in the past year or so about this work, working profile and how can we how can we create the structures and the, and the systems internally to ensure that every student knows their profile? It's not just what is my score on this test or what is my score on this on this standard or, or how did I and perform? by profile you mean like how do I learn? How do I learn their yeah. working profile? Mm-hmm. Right. So we have things like maybe my psychoed um, analysis of like okay um, the psychologist says that these are my deficits and these are the areas that I really excel at. The educator says something differently, mm-hmm. maybe on a on a quarterly report. Uh, my parents may say a third thing, and my friends may say a, a fourth. I, as an individual, view myself a very different way. Right? How do we put all this in the same um, same bucket and help students understand where they thrive, where they need to grow, and to also understand that everyone has one of these working profiles. Everyone yes. learns differently, even if they don't have a learning difference. Right? Everyone has strengths, everyone has weaknesses, everyone has areas to grow in. And this is the beauty about when we get out of the K-12 realm, we can start to specialize in areas that bring us joy and great and, and greatest talents. Yeah. Harness those talents. K-12, everyone must take a minimum number of X, Y, and Z. And for learners that are extremely passionate, uh, creative, and talented that have known deficits... Unfortunately, they have to fight through and figure out a way to survive, in many cases, that K-12 domain. And it becomes a survival process instead of an educational journey for many. And sadly, by the time they do get out of K-12, right, they are so tapped, they are so exhausted, they are so defeated that all those talents, all that creativity have been hampered and and extinguished, per per se, for future growth. So to just own and, and name that our system is currently created to provide this well-rounded, in theory, educational opportunity to give you the foundation and skills to to choose beyond. But we need to also realize that every student's working profile is different and some students are really gonna struggle here or excel there and that's okay. The more we talk about it and the more we can get students to articulate it, even at a young age, the more confident and powerful um, they're gonna be and thinking about just advocating for themselves and their yeah. needs and saying, it's okay. This is an area that this assignment's going to be a challenge for me because it requires X. However, the next one's going to be a little bit easier because it requires Y. And for some students, it's going to be the exact opposite. And that's the beauty of kind of education and learning and our learning profiles Yeah, is that no one student is the same. I want to shift the conversation a little bit into the topic of creativity uh, because you invest so much in your teachers and because your teachers are so invested in the process and in the students how much latitude 
do teachers have? This is kind of a two-part question. Both how much latitude do teachers have in, in approaching students and content creatively? And, and how much do you look for that as a, an attribute of their teaching style? So the Hill method is very explicit and very structured, mm-hmm. which is part of the success. And I think um, what we find is that repetition, that routine, that methodical kind of building of mastery-based learning is really successful for a lot of learners. Not all, mm-hmm. but very successful for a lot of learners. And the way our classes are designed when you think about a traditional 50-minute class is the first half of the class is, is very, um, very locked in. Um, the back half of the class opens up to this world of creativity and exploration. Mm. And that's the exciting piece for those teachers that really, really are creative and really um, are finding ways every day to flip and create and tap into that. And that's a lot of our teachers. So when we when we think about teacher attributes, we have some teachers that come to us that are super creative and they're just like, so, you know, within a 50 minute class, I just want to reinvent and flip everything. Mm. And And for them, what we're trying to do is not 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 keep them down per se but really help them understand the power of the structure on the first half of the class mm-hmm. while saying just hold that skill because the back half of the class is going to release it then we have some teachers on the other side that maybe are very explicit very regimented and love that that need some coaching on the creative side mm-hmm. so we have teachers here that maybe come to us with very different profiles just like our students and are extremely successful because within that classroom the first half really opens itself up to creative outlets and our students are really looking and leaning into our students' skills and the students' um, interest areas to figure out what those creative outlets are. What we found is this very explicit instruction, the, the data and the outcomes are clear, right? What we also find is some students would be happy and content doing this 50 minutes a day, five days a week, and no change. Mm-hmm. That's their learning style. Other students are potentially bucking this trend from the minute they get here and like, okay, well, I just want to do something bigger and more creative and, and, and workshop this. And I think the balance of the classroom of really bringing both together is really powerful for a lot of our students. Yeah. So it helps those regimented learners think more creatively and stretch this early first half of the class learning. It helps the creative students really help organize their thoughts and really get clear and see the sequential nature of the lesson. So I think the way uh, our classrooms are designed with like 50-50 split has been really helpful for not only our students, but for our teachers. And we have some really creative teachers that are doing awesome stuff. The, the individualized nature here makes it very complex because our teachers take individualization to an extreme. Yes, there's only four students in our classrooms, but they will create four different lesson plans for that back half of the class to right. reach four different students often. Um, and that's just something they do, and that's just something they see the outcomes and the power. So when we think about uh, creative creative juices, creative uh, opportunities within schools, again, thinking more broadly here and not just Hill, um, I think the creative piece gives teachers the latitude and the ability to deepen relationships again, right? Every school has programs that they're endorsed and need to push forward. Mm-hmm. A lot of programming has some creative outlets and opportunities for teachers to extend and create. A lot of our learners that maybe need that additional kind of intervention, they often miss out on that, right? Because right. we don't have time for the enrichment and the fun and the creativity. We just need to spend the majority of our time locked in on the basics. And, um, and I think that's where our learners, specifically students who learn differently, are at a disadvantage because they spend a disproportionate amount of their time on the foundations, on the basics, and they don't get to that, in their mind, the fun part of the lesson, right? the creative part of the lesson, where they can actually utilize their skills and talents really well, not in the front half of the class, which is really hard for them. Mm-hmm. So I think the balance that we're trying to create here is a really positive one for those students as well because, um, because that's the piece we want to unlock, unlock and tap into. Otherwise, we're playing the school game and we're, we're, we're forcing this, um, this approach on students throughout their whole K-12 experience. It's not fun. That's, that's click checking the box and they don't see the progress. So, yeah. so we're looking for the balance and, um, and I think our teachers do it extremely well. And I think back to like educators and 
overall, like they're, they're in it for the right reason. They're looking for that connection with students and they want to, they want to be creative, not just creative, but adapt their lessons to meet kids' needs, right? I also mm-hmm. bucket that as creativity, right? Creativity doesn't have to mean in my book like that beautiful lesson that has all the frills and the, and the and beautiful art that gets created, but how can they take maybe a topic or a standard that is really just hard and dry and difficult and black and white and put a spin on it to reach that student. Come at it from a different angle. Come at it from a different angle. Um, and know when to pivot, right? Right. Knowing that this is what I need to cover in, the, in a, any given lesson or day or week, but it's not working. So we give our teachers full license to pump the brakes and take a U-turn or take a side road to get there, right? And that's the exciting piece when we see teachers just kind of um, be tacticians in the classroom, right? It's interesting because that pivots. to me, it sounds like it's an intuitive process at sometimes. Very much. Yeah. kind of shifting, I want to shift the conversation a little bit to sort of the future of education. Uh, Because teacher training is so regimented, um, and also that there's such a a wide disparity of talent um, and ability in, in, in the workforce. And that I don't think as a metric, teachers are entirely encouraged to be intuitive. Mm. Um, how do you see how do you see that evolving or changing? A common concern I feel coming out of education is teachers feeling like they're not valued. They're not given the creative license to adapt lessons, to tweak lessons, to differentiate lessons is really what we're talking about. The differentiate yeah. lessons. Teachers don't just want to differentiate just to differentiate. It's extra work. It's harder work. It's sure. more complex work. They want to differentiate because they realize the the tools or the the program that they're utilizing on any given day is not reaching their child. They know that. They're in front of them. They see that. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they want to make adjustments. Just like any workforce, if something's not working on a daily task or job or in a meeting or, or a function, we're going to make adjustments, right? Um, if a designer is having trouble... Um, making something fit or making something aerodynamic, they're going to tweak it. But teacher's not seeing the outcomes in the student, and that doesn't have to necessarily be uh, educational, um, academic outcomes. It could be the student is just shutting down in front of their eyes. They're the ones every day seeing this. They're the ones with the connective, um, the, the longevity and the connection to the families and students. We need to give them full autonomy to make those adjustments, right. and we need to judge less and trust more. At the end of the day, there's clear outcomes that we can look at. That's standardized outcomes um, and scores. And and that's how teachers are being evaluated mm-hmm. in most fields. And that's how we're ultimately going to make it, uh, decisions on programming and what programs are working or not. <clears throat> Where I get concerned is um, the program flip and the program cycle, right? Schools adopting programs every other year, trying to find something that's going to fit yeah. the masses um, this one doesn't work after a year or two we're not going to hang on to it. we'll get something new so the teachers are constantly learning new programs every other year or every single year they have multiple programs they must use at the end of the day they spend all their talents and energy and time learning new programs instead of focusing on their child yeah and the students in front of them is that an administrative issue I think it's a combination I think it's a political issue I think it's a societal issue um, administrators are also forced with sometimes impossible tasks of ensuring the growth of all students and based on one or two metrics. And, um, you know, happiness, confidence, independence are not measures that we can easily get to or understand. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if we're not seeing the academic gains, they're becoming secondary and tertiary. So if we're looking at the same standardized academic outcomes for students, um, we're going to keep flipping programs until we get there. Yeah. And, um, and I think folks that have been in the field long enough will say there's no program that's ever going to get us there. It's a combination of programs, uh, choice, options, etc. So 
part of that is the teachers having the creative license to to make these adjustments on the fly. We see this a lot of students, a lot of teachers that we interviewed are saying, "I just want to, I want to work in an environment where I'm trusted to do what I need to do for my kids." Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I need resources. Yes, I need programs. Yes, I need technology, and I need planning time to create. But I also want to be trusted, and I want to be able to grow alongside my students. I want to be invested in, etc. Which isn't too big of an ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you see as, and I don't want to put you in a political hotspot here, but what do you see as the future of education in this country? And maybe there's two parts to this, realistically and then idealistically. Where do you want to see it go and how, and then maybe where do you think it actually is going? Or are they the same? So I think the state of education right now is concerning. Yeah. Um, with teacher turnover, teachers leaving, um, the data coming out on the pandemic and what it has done to students as far as social, emotional, academic growth and and learning loss, like that is real. Um, The political divisiveness that is creeping into schools, um, social justice, you name it. So schools are in a tough spot right now and the expectations of educators is becoming increasingly unrealistic and out of reach if it hasn't already been there. So as you, as you play that out over the next few years, like what's going to change that narrative and how's it going to get better? And I think you're going to see some schools uh, doing better than others and maybe um, having more access and resources than others. And you're going to see these gaps in these pockets get created, which isn't a very uplifting future my concern kind of long term is if we can't get back to uh, focusing on the educator and stabilizing the workforce what are the options is it more virtual options that get spun off is it larger classrooms that are created as a result Um, is it less qualified teachers just to fill seats so all of those things concern me. When we started the conversation around the power of the educator, and this is this is what makes schools run, right? Yeah. Um, and this is this is what helps kids find their future. Um, idealistically, if we can use this moment to kind of recenter and rejigger the job description of educators, and the focus, and and maybe design something that's sustainable, not just from a financial standpoint but maybe from an expectation standpoint, um, help empower educators to enter the force for the reasons that we originally have entered, and that was because of the power to make a difference and feeling like the outcomes of one child is worth it at the end of the day. Given teachers the, the ability to be autonomous and adapt and adjust is something that's really important. Um, We talked long before the pandemic about devaluing of the profession and where teachers sit in the professional rankings of of jobs and how they're viewed and how they're... um, That's not in a good spot right now. So so how do we flip that script? Um, I think ideally I would love... I would love to say in 10 years from now, we, we made the profession sustainable and we made the profession enjoyable and we made the profession attractive. And I think there are financial ways to, to get there. I think there's creative license. I think there's um, specialized training. I think there's also just a creative way to figure out the work-life balance. And that's something that we're always mindful of. I think the pandemic has also, also helped us all reflect internally about what I want in life and what's important and what balance is and what a lifestyle is. Well, the education profession, it's like you can't miss a day, right? Sure, you can take a sick day, but you also need to find a sub and you also need to create plans. And you know, There's no time away. Um, so that pressure builds year after year for teachers. So could we find a creative way to, to make the profession um, more flexible? Um, Is, could, could something as simple as bigger budgets, more money, be the solution? Bigger I mean, budgets. It, it yeah. seems like the that that also 
invites more administration, which oftentimes causes more problems than it solves. But if, you know, I've often fantasized that if we treated our teachers like we treat rock stars, you know, or movie stars, not only would there be a much, much more competition for these positions and much more investment, um, but the, the resources would be huge. Budgets help. Resources help because with larger budgets, you could say there's more staff hired, um, more educators hired. More educators hired means smaller ratios. Yeah. More educators hired means maybe a more flexible, sustainable job. More educators hired means maybe a sustainable daily planning period and not eating lunch while planning. So all those things are going to lead to sustainability and make it a desirable field. Mm-hmm. So budgets definitely help and it also gives you access to greater technologies and programming that you're ultimately going to need to have those tools to be accessible and i think class size planning if you talk to teachers they're going to say those are the two things if they could wave that magic stick are going to be um, the keys to solutions if we're mm-hmm. talking about ensuring that every kid has a front row seat but yet a classroom has 30 35 students the challenge is great yeah. right um, it's not a desirable position to be in. And if the outcome, if a successful day is therefore measured as we got by or we survived or we, we made it through the lesson, yeah, that's not going to be enough. What are the implications in your mind of the lack of money and resources? The current lack of resources? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, societally. Well, I think what we're going to do is continue the way we're operating, right? And we're gonna continue with increased class sizes. We're gonna um, continue with increased turnover, increased burnout, folks leaving the profession before the three-year mark. Yeah. Um, if we think about, you know, what provides the greatest outcomes, it's a high quality teacher and it's, and it's ratio. So if we truly believe in the data that, that points to those two metrics, then we need to do everything we can to drive down class size and increase teacher um, teacher aptitude and that is high quality programming but it's also professional growth once they hit the field right and it's time to invest in professional growth it's not just in the summer months right it's time throughout the year it's time on their planning periods it's time to um you know looking at that mentor and growth perspective yeah so it's all those things and um but right now yeah we're seeing an opposite trend happening we're seeing newer teachers enter the field and leave the field so quickly. We're yeah. not seeing any sustainability. We're seeing administrators flip on a rotating basis or we're seeing administrators get moved around because trying to fill holes. Mm-hmm. So the continuity is not there. I think you can also look at the power of, of leadership and the sustainability of leadership and schools that have consistent leadership typically have better outcomes yeah. than schools that have rotating leadership every couple of years as well. So you mix in the rotational nature of teachers and administrators and programs it's tough to get a foothold um, on the field right now. Yeah. I have one more question for you. Uh, and it's one that I ask every, at the end of every conversation I have in the podcast. What's the question that's not being asked right now? Question that's not being asked right now. I'm going to go I'm going to go towards a question that I uh, that I asked myself two years ago and that I've been asking folks a lot since then. And it's, um, it's the question of who, who do you want to be when you grow up? And it sounds very simple, right, and very elementary. Mm. But I think the question we ask our young people as, as parents, as educators, way too often it's what what do you want to be when you grow up which puts some puts that individual in a job in a profession and they're all and, and as a result they're getting boxed in right we we have we have thoughts on what a teacher looks like and does and acts an engineer any 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 profession mm. it's not what because what also puts down them, them on this pathway to say this is what you need to do to become that and I think the question that we need to start asking instead of the what, it's the who. Who do you want to be, right? What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of skills do you want to lean into? Um, how do you want to grow? 
how do you want to respond to adversity? How do you want to be known to your peers, to your friends, to your teachers? Mm. That's something that students have immediate control of now as a first grader, as a kindergartner, as, yeah. a, as a 12th grader. It's not something of the what of in 10, 20 years from now, what do you want to be doing? It's who do you want to become? Because if we don't start helping students understand who they want to become, back to this learning profile, then the what will perhaps never get there. Yeah. So the who is powerful. And um, I've been asking a lot more of, of students I've, I've encountered in the past two years, ever since I started asking myself this question. And it really started um, with my own kids as a parent, catching myself of asking the what. And of course, it's going to change every week, right? Sure. What they want to become changes every week. But hopefully who they want to become doesn't change that dramatically. Mm-hmm. And if we can start to lean into the who, it also reduces anxiety in my mind. It reduces the stress. It's something that they can actually control for the most part um, with supports of others. So I would like to encourage everyone to start asking who who they want to become and ask of others who do they want to become. Brilliant answer. Great answer. Very encouraging. Hopeful. Thank you. Dr. Brander, Brian, thank you so much for your time and the work that you do here. It's a pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. And, um, you know, back to encouraging all out there listening. Ask the who. Don't give up. Uh, invest deeply in the relationships of others. I mean, that's that's critical, not just in schools, but you could apply that to any profession, to any, any, any day. So, who do you want you. to become? Who do you want to become? Beautiful. Thanks again. Thank you. We breathe, we eat, we sleep, and we dream, we love, we cry, we fight, we make up, and we play. Play lets us discover new parts of ourselves. In play, we expand our potential, we feel safe, we trust. In that safety and trust, we experiment with what we can imagine. Better art, better us, a better world for ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities. Our shared humanity, a common good. That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem solving to the next level. Carolina Commons, uncommon creativity for all.